Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. Thank you so much, Dr. Aiken, for the introduction. There are a few leaders in the church that I look up to, but nobody that I respect and admire more than the president of this school, Dr. Aiken. In fact, I said to him a long time ago, I would not be in the ministry today if it wasn't for watching him as a leader. All right, we're beginning a new semester, so for those of you who are shiny new students at the College of Southeastern or at Southeastern Seminary, welcome. For those of you that are returning, I'm glad that you're back. It's good to see you back in person in this chapel because I've been on the faculty before COVID and during that period of time where everybody just scurried back home and hid in the closets until COVID was over with. There's a lot that you're going to learn this semester, and I think there's a lot that you will hear in the classroom that will stick with you for the rest of your life. But today I want to share with you from one verse of Scripture, we're going to spend just a few moments trying to break apart one verse of Scripture, and I think there are some lessons in life that you really can't learn in a textbook. You're going to learn these, unfortunately, the hard way by going to the school of hard knocks. And if you're a really wise follower of Christ, maybe you'll learn these by watching somebody else, but let's just be honest, y'all. These are the really painful lessons of life that you learn by falling down and skinning up your knee or watching a leader fall down and skin up their knees a little bit. There's one verse in the Old Testament that as I read it, I am stunned by what I'm hearing. Today, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 15. You got a Bible? Would you go ahead and flip open there? If you're rocking the old school papal Bible, stay in 1 Samuel 15, because we're really going to try to look at the whole chapter. If you got the Bible on a mobile device, what I want us to do right out of the gate is focus on 1 Samuel 15 verse 35. This verse is like a train wreck that's just happened in front of us. We didn't get a chance to see the train come off the tracks. We just stumbled across the train wreck after it's already gone off the tracks, which means there's broken glass and there's bodies and there's blood everywhere. And we know something really, really bad happened, but we're not exactly sure what happened. And what you see when you stumble across 1 Samuel 15, 35 is a train has just derailed. A leader has just imploded. And I hope by the time that we're done today, we'll get a chance to see what happened And how did it get this bad? One verse, 1 Samuel 15, 35. Even to the day of his death, the his in this verse is referring to the prophet Samuel. Even to the day of his death, Samuel never saw Saul again. I'm going to have to say that about five times today. Saul, Saul again. King Saul. Here's what I want you to hear from the Bible. Samuel, this great man of God, mourned for Saul. And listen to these words. Let it strike terror in your heart like it does mine. And the Lord regretted that he made Saul king over Israel. The title of this sermon, if that's what you can call it, is an autopsy of a leadership fatality. 
But really what we're seeing here is a crime scene. We're looking at a scene of an accident, and it's bad. It's as bad as you can get, and we're trying to figure out how did this happen. For those of you who stood up just a few moments ago because you served in the military, this is really what we would call an AAR, right? An after-action review. We're looking at the events after it's happened, and we're trying to figure out what just went wrong because all I know is I don't want that to happen to me. And in order, I think, to really understand what we're seeing here in 1 Samuel 15, 35, we've got to scroll forward on the timeline just a little bit. You got to go to the end of the book, 1 Samuel, because there is a battle that takes place at the end of 1 Samuel. God has, is so disappointed with this first king of Israel that he's decided, I'm done with this guy, Saul, and I'm going to hand him over, listen to this, to these foreign idol-worshiping pagan neighbors, and I'm going to let them defeat my own people because of this leader. And at the end of 1 Samuel, in chapter 31, verse 6, listen to how bad this was. So on that day, Saul, king of Israel, died, listen to this, with his three sons, with his armor bearer, and all of the men of Israel. What the Bible is describing is when God has decided in his mind, that's it, I'm done with Saul, those events will eventually lead to this final battle, 1 Samuel, 30, or 1 Samuel um, chapter 31, and at this final battle, God kills King Saul, destroys his legacy, his three sons are dead, his security guard is dead, and all of his army is scattered. And take it from a guy who's studied military history, this is one of the worst moments a kingdom has faced on a battlefield in history. And you don't even need to know a lot about the military to know. A victory that one-sided, it has to be because of the hand of God. So can we just stop for a second and ask, what did Saul do that was so bad that Samuel mourned that man and God regretted ever having put him in charge and made him a leader? And what I'm going to try to do is kind of take a couple of highlights from 1 Samuel 15 and maybe try to figure out what went wrong and how did this train derail. And the first thing that I think... 1 Samuel 15 describes is Samuel, or King Saul, when he does wrong, he tries to make it, uh, he tries to minimize it, he tries to treat it like it's no big deal. In fact, if you're taking some notes, would you write down 1 Samuel 15 verse 8, and then put in parentheses, it's no big deal, except for prophet Samuel who the Bible uses this word, this Hebrew word, mourns, meaning in Samuel's heart, something has died here. And because it's the perfect verb, it can't get any worse in Samuel's heart how bad his heart is broken over Saul. And I think Samuel's hope for Saul dies at this moment when King Saul does wrong and instead of admitting that he does wrong, he tries to minimize it and treat it like it's no big deal. Here's what chapter 15, verse 8 says. It says, he, 
King Saul, captured King Agag of Amalek alive, but he completely destroyed all of the people, uh, all of the rest of the people with the sword. That sounds like no big deal, right? It sounds like it's actually a pretty good thing that King Saul did because God has sent Saul and the army of Israel to go out and to do battle against King Agag and against the Amalekites. And God has given King Saul very, very specific instructions. This is the promise that he made to Abraham way back in Genesis 16 coming to pass. I'm going to drive out these foreign, or these foreign nations from the land of Canaan, and I'm going to use my army. I'm going to use my people to do it. So here's what I want you to do, Saul. Listen to these instructions. You're to go into battle and you're going to defeat the Amalekites. And I want you to kill everyone. I want you to kill their army. I want you to kill their king. I want you to kill all of the people. I want you to kill all of the animals. I have pronounced a judgment on their sin. And if you're thinking about these instructions from the Lord, here's what he said. I want you to kill their women. I want you to kill their babies. I want you to kill their cattle. I want you to kill their dogs and cats. If they have goldfish or birds as pets, I want you to kill everything in the land because I will have no more of this sin. And Saul goes off to battle. Saul is wildly successful in battle. But he decides personally, you know what? I'm going to take the king captive instead of killing him. And by the way, my people are a bunch of ranchers. And when I see cows and sheep and donkeys, I see a lot of money. So let's keep some of the animals for ourselves. And that's when Samuel shows up on the scene. Because God has sent his prophet to go to the king and to say, Saul, what did you do? God's instructions were very, very uh, clear here. You were supposed to annihilate every living thing from the land. Why do I hear animals? And why is that pagan king still alive? And Saul's first answer is, it's no big deal. Like, hey, I did most of what God asked me to do. I just didn't do all of what God asked me to do. And if you were in the crowd as a spectator, the day that Samuel showed up, there's two kings that are alive right now at this moment, King Agag and King Saul. One of those two kings will learn at this moment just how serious God takes sin when Samuel grabs the sword and does for King Saul what Saul was supposed to do, when Samuel kills King Agag, and Agag apparently is the only one who learns this moment just how serious God is with sin. And I'm trying to say to you, when you fall into temptation, when you give in to sin, it's going to be quick, it's going to be easy for you to try to minimize it, to try to look at your sin and compare it to somebody else's, and to say, hey, it's not that big of a deal. Hey, I know what I did was wrong, but what they did is much, much worse. And what the Bible is reminding us today is God takes sin very seriously. So listen to me, Southeastern family, don't play loose and don't play fast with the commands of God. Hey, you church planners out there, when you're the first guy 
building culture in an organization like King Saul was the first king of Israel, you really, really don't want to play fast and loose with the commands of God because the climate that you set will follow long after you. And Saul received very specific instructions from the Lord. And Saul decided to do his own thing anyway. This is, if we're we're going to get serious with each other for just a second, all of us are going to be tempted from time to time this semester. And some of us are going to give in to that temptation. And what you do next after you give in to that temptation, after you stumble, after you skin your knee up, after you fall into sin, what you do next makes all of the difference. So can I just remind us? I need to be reminded of this all the time. Listen, if Jesus really is the branch and I really am the vine, then apart from him, I can do nothing. And when I try to step out on my own and try to do things my own way or try to accomplish his will my way, I'm going to fall down and I'm going to make some mistakes just like Saul did. And so will you. So please let 1 Samuel chapter 15 scare you like it does me if you call yourself a leader. Samuel tries to start off by saying, you know what, it's no big deal. And really what he was trying to do is dismiss his sin. Or King Saul tries to dismiss his sin, but Samuel Samuel won't let that happen. So now Saul tries a different technique. Okay, maybe it is a big deal, but it's not my fault. Because if you see what he says next in verse 15 of chapter uh, 15, he's going to try to point the blame somewhere else. And I just want to remind us of what the Bible is saying to us. Not only did Samuel mourn like something died in Samuel's heart when Saul did this, but the Lord regretted that he ever made Saul king. I don't have the skills or the time to stand up here today and explain to you how an omnipotent and an immutable God can look at this guy and decide, I wish I never made him king. Your theology department here can do a much better job of that than I can. But I do want to say the Lord looks over this incident and says, you know what? Not only am I done with this guy, but I wish I would have never put him in charge because of what happens after he sins. And basically, when he can't escape the, the fact that it's a sin, now he's going to try to point the finger somewhere else. Here's how verse 15 describes it. If you're still with me, we're in 1 Samuel 15, verse 15. Saul answered, The troops, listen to this, the troops brought them from the Amalekites and spared the best sheep, goats, and cattle in order to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we, but the rest we destroyed. Okay, God gives King Samuel instructions, and like any chain of command, Samuel gives instructions to his army. They go to battle, they are wildly successful, and instead of killing King Agag, they bring him back as a captive. Instead of killing, they kill all of the rest of the people, all of the rest of the animals, but you know what? That cattle and those sheep, they're worth a lot of money. And so what we ought to do is keep them and bring them into our flocks. And then here's what church people do all the time, right? 
they throw a Bible verse on it. You know what we'll do? We'll actually honor God with this by sacrificing some of them later on as a way of trying to honor God for this big victory that he's given us. And when Samuel shows up and asks Saul, what just happened? Because you received very specific instructions. Saul's first attempt is to say, it's no big deal. It's not a sin. And when he can't pull that one off, then he says, you know what? It's not my fault. Here it is. It's the troops' fault. They're the reason why the king is still alive. It's their fault that these animals are still alive. And he's a leader that is now trying to shirk his responsibility and point the blame somewhere else. And as a leader, no matter what circumstance you find yourself in, if your team is wrong, if your organization has messed up, maybe you're not personally responsible, but you are at least um, conditionally responsible, tangentially responsible for what's going on. See, I don't know about you, but I hear church people do this all the time. They stumble into sin, and what they try to do is cover up their sin by throwing a couple of Bible verses on it. You know, like, hey, we're not really gossiping about that sister who just did something wrong. We're sharing this as a prayer request. Bless her heart. We just want to pray for her. No, you're not. You're actually condemning her, and you're gossiping about her behind her back. And church people do this all the time. We throw a couple of spiritual references or Bible verses on it, and what we're trying to do is sweep our sin under the rug. And really, Saul is saying, hey, it's not my fault. It's the troops' fault. They did this. Or, hey, God, we're trying to do something good with these animals. We're actually going to sacrifice these animals to you. God, why are you so mad at us right now? And this type of teleology is rampant in the church. It's the church leaders out here that will take any approach to try to accomplish your objective. And I think what 1 Samuel 15 is reminding us is God cares both about the results and the method. Did you hear me? God cares very much about how you get to where you go. Not just, how you, not just what it's like when you get there. He is concerned about how you get there. And Samuel is, or Saul is wildly successful on the battlefield, but he just happens to bend the rules a little bit and think, I can make a lot of money if I keep these animals instead of killing these animals. I really hate to do this, but there's a book that I recommend everybody in the room get. Write this down, will you? There's a book entitled Extreme Ownership. Now, the reason I hate to do this is not because you already have enough reading and you don't need somebody in chapel telling you to get another book. I hate to do this because it's two Navy SEALs that wrote this book, and you don't know how hard it is for an Army Ranger to recommend books by a Navy SEALs. Because if you can get past the fact that these two Navy SEALs spend a lot of the book telling you how awesome the Navy SEALs are and therefore how awesome they are, if you can get past that fact, when you get to the essence of the book, the thesis of the book, I'll give it to you. I'll make it really easy for you. The title of the book is Extreme Ownership, and the thesis of the book is if something goes wrong and you're the leader, you're, you're at fault. 
Maybe you're personally at fault because you did something wrong. Maybe you're at fault because you created the conditions or the culture where something like this could happen. But no matter what, as a leader, you don't ever get the chance. This is what they say again and again in extreme ownership. You don't ever get the chance to stand up and to say, it's not my fault. When stuff goes south in your church, in your Christian organization, in your family, you don't get to point the finger at somebody else and say, it's their fault. Extreme ownership does this very, very well. Your first finger always gets pointed back. And you look in the mirror and you say, God, where did I go wrong? What did I do wrong? If I didn't do this personally, what did I do wrong that created the climate and the conditions where something like this could happen? And if Saul at this moment would have fallen on his face and said, I was wrong, it's totally my fault, I will fix this, perhaps this event wouldn't have ended his life and his entire family's dynasty if he would have handled it differently. But instead, he's one of those, it's no big deal leaders, or it is a big deal, but it's not my fault kind of leader. And when those two approaches don't work with Samuel, then Saul tries the final approach. And here's the final approach. Yeah, it's a sin, but can we just keep it quiet for a second? Can we just minimize who hears about this thing? Listen to me, Southeastern. How you respond when you sin will make all of the difference. In fact, if we can be honest for just a second, some of you out there are thinking to yourself, I would never do what King Saul did. And the truth is, there is uh, scores of Christian leaders, men that I have the greatest respect for, who burned in at some point in their ministry. And if they would have just been willing to admit that they were wrong and own the fact that they were wrong, perhaps it wouldn't have ended their ministry. But because they tried to hide it, because they tried to cover it up, I'm not being crass with what I say next. It ends up on the front page of the Houston Chronicle. And when you sin, or when I sin, instead of trying to hide it in the dark, let's just own it and bring it out into the light. And instead of running from Jesus, let's run to him with, him and with it and say, I'm sorry, and help me. God, forgive me, and God, help me that something like this doesn't ever happen again. If Saul would have taken that approach, maybe the end of 1 Samuel doesn't read the way that it does. Because when he finally does have no choice but to admit it's a sin, he actually asks Samuel. King Saul asks him, will you help me cover this up? Will you help me look good in the eyes of my countrymen, in the eyes of my church? Would you help me look good in front of other leaders? Would you flip real quickly to 1 Samuel 15, verse 30? He's already tried to say, it's no big deal. It's not a sin. And that doesn't work with Samuel. He's already tried to say, all right, if it's a sin, it's not my fault. It's the, the troops' fault. It's my army's fault. That doesn't work with Samuel. And now Samuel's got him over a barrel, and Saul has no choice. First Samuel 15, verse 30, Saul said, I have sinned. And then look what comes next. Please 
honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I can bow in worship to the Lord your God. And if you keep reading in this chapter, you'll see that Samuel goes with Saul. Samuel worships with Saul one more time. And Samuel will never see Saul again this side of the grave because now God has pronounced final judgment on this guy. Saul's the kind of leader who cares more what the crowd thinks, what the church thinks, than what Christ thinks. Man, I hope that scares the living daylights out of you like it does me. Because if we were honest for just a second in this room, I think all of us would have to say, there's some people in the church that I love. There's some guys and gals that I highly respect. And their opinion of me means the world to me. And that's a beautiful thing. But if you're not careful, you're going to care so much about what they think that when you do fall down and skin your knee, when you mess up, you're tempted, strongly tempted, to minimize this like hundreds of Southern Baptist churches did when we sinned and tried to cover it up. And the Houston Chronicle said, it's not just what you did, but how you reacted to what you did that caused us to start to look at this and admit, if this can happen to brothers and sisters in Southern Baptist churches all over the country, it can happen to me. And it can happen in your church because I care more about what they're going to say about me on social media than what Christ thinks about me. And I wish we didn't live in this cancel culture where there are pastors who have made their entire ministry blogging about a brother and criticizing him and kicking him when, when he's down instead of doing what Galatians chapter 6 calls us to do and restoring a brother with a gentle spirit and bearing one another's burdens to fulfill the law of Christ. Instead of that, you're going to have lots and lots of people that are going to jump on the bandwagon and point the finger and laugh at you when you're down. And it's going to hurt, and it's supposed to hurt. But what Christ thinks about you is infinitely more important than what the crowd thinks about you. As hard as it is for you to hear this or me to say it, what Christ thinks about you is infinitely more important than what the church, your church, thinks about you. Because 10,000 years from now, I learned this from a preaching professor at Southern Seminary who's sitting in the front row 10,000 years from now, there's only one voice that matters. And it's the voice of King Jesus who says, well done, good and faithful servant. Yeah, you made some mistakes along the way, but I went to the cross to pay for those for you. And because you run to Jesus, instead of running from Jesus, 10,000 years from now, you get the ultimate reward of the faith. Well done. Welcome into the rest. Receive the reward that I have planned and waiting for you in heaven. You see, if we we're going to be honest for just a second, we're examining this leadership failure, and it's a sin. And Saul finally gets to the point where he has no choice but to admit it's a sin. But all of us out here have read about the second king of Israel, right? That guy messed up a little bit too. Maybe you know the story. Not only did he commit a little sin, but he murdered a man 
that he had already had adultery with his wife so that he could steal his wife and have her for his own wife. And when David sins, if you were to examine why does God treat Saul the way that he does, when he treats David the way that he does, that he treats David, there's a stark difference in these two. And by the way, looking at the two, it looks like what David did is much worse than what Saul did. So why are we getting 1 Samuel 31 results from Saul? And you are left with no choice but to say, it's because of the way that Saul responded and the way that David responded when they sinned. Because when Nathan the prophet looked at David and pointed his finger and said, you're the man, David got down off of that throne and fell on his face and said, God, I've sinned, and God, I'm sorry, and God, forgive me. What Saul did is try to excuse it and make it no big deal or try to point the blame somewhere else and say it's somebody else's fault. And even when he couldn't get out of the fact that it was a sin, he tried to sweep it under the rug and say, you know what, yeah, I did wrong, but can we just minimize this and keep it quiet? And if he would have reacted the way that David reacted, maybe David and his descendants never sit on the throne. Maybe this is the reason why God says, I'm done with Saul, and I'm going to find somebody else who will follow after me with all their heart. Only once in 23 years in the army did I ever have to appear before a court-martial. I was still a sergeant in the Army's Ranger Regiment. And my buddy had been arrested and brought before a military trial of military officers for some very serious crimes that carried with them 20 years in prison to life and perhaps death. The whole court-martial proceedings convicted one of my best friends in the army of attempted murder and conspiracy to commit murder. And after the judgment was rendered, while the court-martial was trying to decide what the sentence for my friend Lowell would be, his judge asked me, or his lawyer asked me, Jeff, would you be willing to appear at the sentencing phase on your friend's behalf? Would you appear as a character witness? You see, what the lawyer saw, what I saw, was there was a huge transformation of my friend while he was sitting in a brig and getting ready to go before a court-martial. I visited him many times in this military jail, and my friend that was proud and strong and arrogant had been humbled for the first time in his life. And I shared the gospel with Lowell while he was in that prison cell. And I watched this big, strong army ranger fall down literally on his knees and confess his sin and repent and reach out to Jesus. And I watched this transformation, so significant of a transformation that while he was still incarcerated, asked, would you be willing to take part in my baptism? And I helped lead him into a military pond while he was still in handcuffs and shackles as we baptized this man and as I witnessed an entirely new man come out of the water. And his lawyer asked me, would you stand before these officers? Because they think this is jailhouse religion. They believe that he's attempting to minimize his 
sentence, Jeff, would you stand before them and would you try to convince these leaders that this is real and this is legitimate? The first and only time in my entire career that I stood in front of a court martial and said, I've known that man since he was brand new to the army. And what I'm seeing in front of me is a very different man. When the judge finally handed down the minimum sentence possible, 20 years in a maximum security prison, my friend Lowell, with handcuffs and shackles on, walked over to the person that he tried to murder and said, I did it, I was wrong, I sinned, and would you forgive me? And that man is a radically new person. I wish you could read the letters that he sent me from jail that says, although I'm in a maximum security prison, I am free for the first time in my life because I have been set free at the soul level. Now, would you listen to me for just a second? I'm not just talking about the students that are in the faculty in this room. I'm talking about those of you who are tuning in online. I'm talking about a mom who has the responsibility of leading these children that God has given you. I'm talking about the church leaders and the future missionaries that are listening right now. You're going to be highly tempted to lead like it's my way or the highway. And when you mess up, you're going to be very tempted to try to minimize it like Saul did. Try to make it no big deal like he did try to point the blame somewhere else and it's the circumstances or it's somebody else's fault. And if you learn nothing else from this chapel service today, I am begging you, when you sin and everything inside of you wants to run from Jesus, will you instead run to him? And will you say, forgive me, I'm sorry, I was wrong Holy Spirit, I need your help so that this never happens again, but I need you to cleanse me. Because the difference between Saul and David is not the sin. It's the reaction to the sin that separates it. And my prayer for you is when you stumble, when I stumble, God forget, forbid, when that happens, don't sweep it under the rug. Don't point the finger. Don't try to dismiss it and act like it's no big deal. Own it by running to Jesus instead of running from him. And I hope you feel like I do right now. God, help me. Would you just bow with me for prayer? And let's pray about this semester. Let's pray about this, uh, the time that you're here. Let's pray about the ministry that God has you in right now or he's calling you to in the future. Father, as I look back and read from your scripture, as I hear from James chapter 3, verse 1, that anybody who desires the work of a leader and overseer, they desire a good thing, but we're going to be doubly judged because of that. God, I look at Saul, and I see this man who was wildly successful on the battlefield, but he simply played games with your commands. And when he was called out, Instead of being convicted and falling on his face and admitting his mistakes, he ran from them and ultimately tried to hide them. And God, I feel it in my heart, and I hope that your spirit is speaking to every single person tuned in online or in this room that they are feeling this too, like I really want to run away from my sin instead of running to Jesus with it. So Father, forgive us when we mess up and don't represent you well. But God, would you help us? Would you protect us from the strong pull to minimize it and to make it somebody else's fault 
or to make it go away by not even bringing it into the light. God, would you help us today to remember when I mess up, I will run to Jesus instead of running from Jesus, and I will find grace and mercy in abundance just like David did instead of trying to run away and hide it like Saul did and get to the point that it breaks the heart of everybody around me and it grieves your heart that you've even put me in charge of this family, these children, this ministry. So God, I pray for my heart first and then I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room that we would honor you and love you and care about your glory enough that we would be willing to even run to you and own our sin instead of running from you and trying to hide it. It's in Jesus' name that I pray this. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, visit scbts.edu.